Welcome to the Eastern Hills Audio Podcast. We exist to help as many people as possible take their next step towards finding community and following Christ. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're good with Jesus, just not his church. Maybe you're feeling disconnected and want to reconnect. We think you'll find our messages both helpful and hopeful. So enjoy. Well, today we're kicking off a new series. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be discussing something that we're all familiar with. Baggage. That's right. (laughs) Have you heard it before? Hey, watch out. They've got some baggage. They've got some things in their past they didn't deal with. Caution. They've got baggage. Well, if we're honest, we've all got it. Baggage. We've all got things in our life, baggage that we might be very well aware of, okay? But there's also baggage in our life that we choose not to deal with and it's there, but we're not doing anything about it. But here's another perspective. Baggage can be helpful. In fact, this is a picture of the Ryerson family traveling a few years ago. Rose is very little and Clover was just born. And so she's not met Granny and Bumpa. So we're making our way from California to Massachusetts. And we've got the car seats and the booster and the carry-on and the, the bags. I mean, it's incredible what you bring with you when you travel across the country. But, and this is just two kids. Now we, we are a, a circus with, with the five of us, but I got to give my wife props. I mean, her packing skills, it's amazing. I mean, who, who knew what you could fit in a one bag, 50 pounds or less? I mean, it's a, she's a magician. Who would have thought that our entire house could fit in one bag? <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. You know, mom, uh, you've got superpowers, you know, wives. And some of you men, I'm not you. Some of you are great with this too. But let's be honest. Moms, you've got the superpower. You can remember everybody else's stuff and your own. I mean, me, I'm kind of helpless at times. It's like, okay, I got my beef jerky. I got my water. I got my book. I got my earphones. I got my phone. got my carry-on. got my basics. You know, all right, honey, I'm good to go. And Kirsten's like, well, that's nice. I've got to pack the three girls and myself. And, and the things that you remember, the, the extra diapers, the change of clothes, the, the favorite toy, the, sleep, the, the sleep, sleeping blanket comforter and, and medication to help your kids sleep when they're driving the rest of the, the plane crazy. I mean, it is amazing what you remember, but here's what you know to be true, that baggage can make or break a trip. The things that you remember to bring can help what you're, where you're going be that much more enjoyable, or it could make it worse because you, you forgot some things that you, that, you, that you desperately needed, and it's like, oh, I left it at home, and suddenly your trip is, is ruined, or at least not what it could have been. Now, this summer, many people have great anticipation on trips that you're about to partake in because some people rescheduled vacations, you know, anniversary getaways, uh, honeymoon getaways, and, and annual camping trips. Maybe you're a camper. Any campers watching today, you could maybe put in the chat if you're watching through our uh, online, you know, broadcast. You know, if you're driving in the car, listening during the week, maybe give a honk and just distract those around, those around you for a second. But if you're a camper, here's the question. Help me understand why you would leave the comfort of your bed and the coziness of your blankets to go outside and sleep on the rocks and fight mosquitoes. What's the selling point? Some of you are hardcore campers. I mean, that's all you bring. You just, you know, you got your backpack, sleep under the stars. Now, there are those, you call it camping, but it's not. You put your house on wheels and you take it with you. It's glamping, you know. You take your entire 
existence with you wherever you go because you know that baggage could make or break a trip. If you've ever experienced the disaster that comes with, you know, an airline losing your bags, you understand this just as much. My wife is traveling back recently from California to, uh, to the, back to the East Coast after visiting family. I helped her get there, helped her get out there. We have a whole system with the stroller that we use to get through the airport to help with carrying the kiddos' carry-ons. And if they're too tired, put them in the stroller. Well, on the way back, the airline said, hey, we changed restrictions. And so it might have worked on the way here, but you got to check that stroller. My wife was heated. And she's thinking, how am I going to get through the terminal and, and, and making my kids dry? So she was, she was not happy. And that definitely made the trip not as enjoyable. But over the next few weeks, next few Sundays, we're going to look at the story of the Israelites and, and their exit from Egypt. And this story that is, is pretty common that most of us are familiar with is going to help us consider in a reality that we all understand. And it's this, that baggage can serve as a bridge or a barrier. The things in our past, the things that we bring with us in life can either serve as a bridge to what we're about to experience to help us thrive, or it can serve as a barrier that it can hold us up. And if you missed last week, I shared one of Moses's sermons, a message to God's people. There are on the tail end of their, their exodus, their long track, their long you know, journey uh, in the wilderness for quite some time. They had experienced tremendous adversity along the way, and they're about to step into a season of prosperity and experience things that they didn't earn, but that is being given to them. And Moses gives this message to say, listen, let's not forget about the past. Let's help have the past serve as a bridge so that we don't experience the same cycle of rebellion over and over again. Let's learn from our past. Let's bring us with us in a helpful way so that it's not a barrier that we can continue to thrive in our relationship with our creator. Here's what he said to them. It's chapter six, Deuteronomy, starting verse 20. He says, in the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord our God, uh, has commanded you, here's what you need to say. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from here to bring us and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us, not optional, it's not, hey, would you, would you consider doing this? No, it's a command to obey all the decrees, all, not some, all. And to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper. See, God's for us. He, he, he wants to, to help us uh, experience the best possible life with him and with other people. Be prosper and be kept alive as in the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he's commanded us, it's not optional, that will be our righteousness. That will be credited to us as, as those that were faithful, that we trusted him. But just a couple of verses later, uh, earlier, sorry, in verse Verse 15, Moses also laid out what would happen if they didn't adhere to everything he just said. It says, For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. 
Now, those that are skeptical of the Bible, one of the common objections is, hey, the God of the Old Testament, he's a moral monster, all about wrath. The God of the New Testament's about love. It seems like they're in conflict. I have a hard time with the things that God did in the Old Testament. Let's talk about justice for a second, because justice is something that you and I both long for. Here's, here's how I would explain that. See, when we do wrong, when we hurt other people or we break the law, our gravitational pull is to say it's just this and not make a big deal about it. But when other people hurt us, other people wrong us, we want justice. We want someone to step in and hold them accountable. Well, God's a God of justice. He lays out the clear expectations. Hey, this is what I want you to do. I'm, I'm here for you. I want you to prosper. But when you don't obey the law and you fall short, there are consequences. And we see this pattern throughout the Old Testament, but we also see that he's a God of grace. He knows that humans could never perfectly obey his standards, which is why he sends Christ to right our wrongs and to serve as the one that was true and righteous and perfect and got it right 100% of the time. So yes, he's a God of justice, but he's also a God of both law and grace as well. Now, The thing about our past is our past is a funny way of showing up in our future for better or for worse. And so if we were to just take a snapshot of what Moses is saying, it's pretty simple. Baggage can serve as a bridge or a barrier. The Israelites were either going to learn from this, bring with them the lessons of the previous generations, and they were going to thrive or it was going to stop them from thriving. And so as we consider the story of the Exodus, Some of us are familiar, you know, the let my people go or the plagues or the parting of the Red Sea. And if you grew up in church and those those stories as a child are believable. But as you get to be an adult, maybe those stories start to sound like just another movie on Netflix, a little far fetched. And I get that because let's be honest, we don't see many stories of people parting major bodies of water like the Red Sea. So you're naturally, uh, you know, inquisitive and think, is this real? Can I, can I buy into this? Archaeologists would say yes. In fact, if you were to visit the Dutch National Museum of Antiquities in the Netherlands, you would find some poetry that supports the writings that we read about in Exodus. Uh, Written on papyrus, and we have this poem that reflects what uh, the Egyptians experienced. Uh, Plague stalks through the land, and blood is everywhere. And this is outside the Bible. Nigh but the river's blood, gates, columns, and walls are consumed with fire. It says, the son of the high-born man is no longer to be recognized. The stranger people from outside are come into Egypt, nay, but corn has perished, you know, everywhere. So, of course, this is, you know, translated into our, in our language today. But um, archaeologists have also unearthed homes that were abandoned and you know, appeared to be abandoned in the heat of the moment. Tools, valuables were left behind as if they were leaving in the night to follow after something. And so there's plenty of evidence that supports the Exodus account. And this is important because, you know, biblical faith as Christians, you know, when we talk about the Old Testament and New Testament, our faith is not rooted in wishful thinking or hopeful thinking. It's rooted in evidence, things that we can verify that's historical that we know to be true. And so the Exodus, uh, that, that title comes from a Greek word, which means to exit or going out. And the author, Moses, in an pen sometime 1445 and I think 1404 BC, uh, but Moses' story constitutes one-seventh of the entire Bible. Moses' story is two-thirds as large as the entire New Testament. In fact, it's estimated that at least 30,000 Israelites 
were led uh, by Moses out of Egypt um, into the wilderness. And parents, let's be honest, you think it's hard. Take a look at my baggage here, getting everything packed into the minivan, getting the kids buckled and together. You think that is, is a tough obstacle. Imagine Moses' gig leading people uh, in uh, through the wilderness and, and out, of, out of Egypt. So Moses is a central person in both the Old Testament and we also read about him in the New Testament. But the story of Exodus begins with Abraham. In the first book of the Bible, uh, it's referenced Abram, but he later his name's changed to Abraham. God communicates a powerful promise. Go from your country, your people, And your father's household to the land, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Whoa, yeah! That's the note that I want to get. That's the text I want to get. Yeah, that's a promise that I want to hold on to. But a few chapters later, God gives the fine print. There's a catch. You know, God communicates through Abraham in a dream, or God communicates to Abraham through a dream. It's a powerful dream. And and this is common in the Old Testament, God communicating through dreams or visions, and we see it also in the New Testament. But with the completion of the Old Testament and New Testament, we no longer have to rely on dreams or visions to hear from God. Our first stop's always the pages of the scriptures. Uh, Can God communicate that way today? Absolutely. Does it happen often? No, not as as much. Uh, Does God always communicate to us through his word? Yes. He always has something to to lead us through when we open up the pages of the Old Testament and New Testament. Now, here's what God communicates. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. (laughs) This is a curveball. If you're an investor and someone says, I got a deal for you. All right. Here's, Here's the thing. The dividends are amazing. I mean, the result of this transaction is going to greatly bless you. You can't even fathom how good of a deal this is. I mean, the investment, I don't tell a lot of people about this, but I'm telling you. Now, you need to understand that uh, it's, you know, you're, <laughs> you're not going to see results for, four, in fact, you won't, but your, your generation, you know, family after, you know, for generations, generations later, you know, in 400 years, that's when you're going to see the results. That's when you're going to see the dividends. You'd be thinking, that's not a deal that I want to take. It's like going to, to Disney, the Avatar ride. If you've been to Disney World before, it's like two days in space is the equivalent of how much time you spend in the Avatar ride. About three, three hours of your life just waiting in line for like a few minutes of a ride. But you think, you keep telling yourself, it's going to be great. And that's what God's telling Abraham. It's going to be great. But I will punish the nation. They will serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. And so if you're an outsider looking in, you might ask yourself, how can you guys be okay with a God that promises anybody 400 years of pain? I mean, today we remove dictators from powerful positions that promise temporary pain on their people. So why do we have a different standard for God? And I appreciate the question, but here's the assumption that we would be making if we followed that train of thought or that thinking. The assumption is that God is the one that causes the pain and misery for 400 years. Uh, We just wrapped up a series, Nothing Wasted, not too long ago. And in that series, we 
explain that God doesn't cause everything that happens to us. And so I'm not going to assume that the fact that my wife wasn't able to take the stroller with her through the airport was God. All right, Kirsten, things are too good for you, so I'm going to remove the stroller. I'm not going to assume. Could have been, sure, but I'm not going to assume that everything hard in my life is a result of God uh, wanting that to happen to me. So I'm not going to assume that the cancer diagnosis is, is God or the response to deep-rooted sin or in my life. No. And what we said in that series is that some hurt that we experience in our life is done by us, by poor decisions that we make. You know, some hurt that we experience in our life is the result of living, uh, you know, life with, with other people and their poor decision making. And some hurt that we experience in our life is the result of living in a fallen and broken world. We don't want to assume that God causes everything that happens to us, but we do want to assume that he will use everything that happens to us. And so will we learn from the stroller fiasco? Yes, we will research the regulations and you better believe that going forward, we're not going to get that wrong. So our past will serve as a bridge to our future travels. That's how we can learn and grow and know what to take with us. Now, Joseph um, had a similar experience. His past showed up in his future. And Joseph's story is important because Joseph's story is the extension of Abraham's story. And that's how the book of Exodus begins. Just a few verses in, it says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. So we talked about Joseph recently. You know, Joseph came from a blended family. Um, Abraham Isaac, uh, fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Joseph. Joseph had many brothers. Brothers got jealous. They tried to take Joseph out. Joseph goes through many different trials and tribulations, gets raised to a powerful position of authority and government. His brothers show up looking for him for help. They don't realize that it's his brother. Through a period of tests, Joseph discerns that his brothers have repented. There's great reconciliation and God takes the worst situation and, and brings about a story of redemption. And so that's how Joseph's past showed up in his future, but he chose for that it would be a bridge to what God would do in him and through him. And so this account comes to an end and a new beginning starts. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Uh, they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So this is a, as a season of, of prospering for God's people. Now, <laughs> a new sheriff arrives on the scene. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. And so with transition and leadership, like we recently experienced, new cabinets, new policies, uh, the changes are made. And so this one particular ruler feels threatened. So he wants to make some changes. He says, come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous if war breaks out and they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So two things are going to happen. He's saying, listen, they're going to hurt us with our abundance because they could join forces with our enemies and take us out, or they could hurt us with their absence. If they leave the country, it's going to crash our economy because we rely on them as slaves and our servants to keep things going. And so the new guy says, this is what we're going to do. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for the Pharaoh. 
But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Because here's the deal. When you're a slave in a captivity, there's not a whole lot to do. You're not coming home and putting on Hulu and having a cold beverage, okay? So when you're in captivity and you're a slave, you multiply greatly, and they did that very well. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Moses is helping us understand how bad things were. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Whenever there's repetition in the Bible, you want to pay attention. Moses' point, things were bad, and then God showed up. God didn't just show up. God revealed his glory, his splendor, his majesty, his holiness, and it rocked Moses' world. And so God gets Moses to a point where Moses sees for God for who he is and says, now that I've got your attention, I've got a mission for you. Here's your mission, and you will choose to accept it. He says, I've seen, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So where was God in the midst of the, the pain and, and hurting? He wasn't absent. He was very much aware. He had seen it, and he had heard it. And so he comes with a plan. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land where they're experiencing suffering and into a good and spacious land. And he says, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it's, it's, it's a land that's, that's prosperous. The home of the Canaanites, uh, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. You see, when we are in the midst of of difficult circumstances, it's so easy to convince ourselves, you know, God doesn't understand, he's absent, he doesn't know what's happening. But if we look at the Old Testament and New Testament, it shows us time and time and time again that he is with us. So he says to Moses, so now go. <laughs> Pretty simple instruction, go. I'm sending you. Who, me? <laughs> yes, you, Moses. Where? To the Pharaoh. Huh. To bring my people the Israelites, out of, Egypt, out of Egypt. No big deal. Just like 30,000 people. You know, that's pretty simple. But Moses, in response, says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And so we pause here to unpack this question a little bit. Is it true that, that Moses just experienced God's holiness uh, in his glory? Yeah, and there is a, there is a point of just saying, well, who, who am I in light of who you are? But there's also some of Moses's past showing up in his future. See, Moses was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter, he grows up in the uh, powerful household. But one day as he starts to uh, come to an understanding of who he is, he sees uh, an Egyptian uh, beating an Israelite and he loses his temper and he murders the Egyptian. And so he goes into exile and in exile is where God shows up and reveals himself. And so in encountering God for who he is, his, his response is, you know, in light of who I am, who, who am I? I don't think I'm the guy. And this is fascinating because if we fast forward a few years later, uh, a, few, a few chapters into this story, 
Moses is transformed. It's like someone gave Moses the super serum that Steve Rogers took to become Captain America. Because in, in the Numbers 28, we see this account, this exchange between Moses and God. And this is why Moses doesn't end up in the promised land. Moses shows up, uh, God shows up to Moses and says, take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, uh, gather the assembly together. They need water. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. I'm going to provide. I'm going to solve another problem yet again. And this is Moses' response. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and his brother gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses gives a speech. It sounds kind of like a coach at halftime. All right. <clears throat> listen, you rebels. Listen, you uh, knuckleheads. You guys need to get it together. Must we bring you water out of this rock? God, does Aaron and I, do we have to do everything around here? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Again, temper getting the best of him. Not once, but twice. Wait a minute. What did God say to do? Let's back up here. He said to speak to that rock. What is he doing here? He is striking the rock, not once, but twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. So, did God still choose to provide despite Moses' rebellion? Yes. God said, speak. Moses struck. God said, he. Moses said, we. And the consequence was that no milk and honey for Moses. He's not getting into the promised land. Uh, that was the consequence for his own rebellion. You see, his past was showing up in his future, and his temper kept getting the best of him. And so here's how our past often shows up in our future, and we see both of these things in Moses. Uh, there's two familiar pasts that I think most of us have experienced. Uh, Self-importance and self-pity. One says, look at what I've done. Look at my accomplish. Look at my greatness. You know, Moses hung the staff. Do we have to do everything around here? Look what I've done. Look what I've, where I've been. Look where I went to school. Look what car I drive. Look who I'm married to. Look, 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 look. Look at my kids. Look, how, look what I've done. Self-importance. And then there's self-pity which also says, look what I've done or look what I've not done. I'm a, I'm a failure. I'll never be what I could have been. And again, the focus is inwardly. And so let me illustrate it this way. Take a look at this ladder here. You know, all of us have a moral standard for our life. Even if you're not a God person, a Bible person, you've got standards. There's standards that you say that you should live up to and then how other people should live up, how they should live their life and how they should treat you. And when you meet those standards, hey, you know what? I obey the law, you know. I ain't no traffic tickets on my, my record. You know, I pay taxes. I'm honest. I, I attend the church. I, I serve the community. I, I coach my kids' soccer team. I'm a good person. And the more that you climb up the, the ladder of morality, it's easier to look down at other people and say, Look at who I am and look at who you are. I'm important. And, and the gravitational pull of, of people that are highly religious or righteous in their thinking and they're all about law and they miss grace, they, uh, they lack compassion. And I, and, I, and I put myself in that camp. It's easy to say, well, I, at least I'm, you know, I'm doing better than they are and to look down at other people. I struggle with this too, and so I can resonate with Moses. There's times in my life where I said, God, look what I am. Do I got to do everything around here? Now, on the flip, if we come down the ladder of morality and we say, oh, I fell short. You know, I'm, I got a divorce. My, 
my relationship with my kids isn't what I want it to be. I haven't been to church in years and I got a DUI on my record. And, you know, I, I just moved from one job to the next. I can't keep a job. I can't keep it down. My finances are mad. I'm in over my head over dead. And, and I'm just stressed out of my mind all the time. I just, you know, I'm, ah, woe is me. And so when we talk about pity, there's compassion we express to other people, but then there's pity where it's as well as me and it's inward focus and I'm a failure and I'll never be good enough. And I want you to be set free from that. If I'm describing you, I want you to know that this is a feeder sin. When we are constantly in self-pity, here's what self-pity will lead you to. It will lead you to a place where you start judging others because you, the comparison trap is, is you're just as prone to it with self-importance as you are with self-pity. You start judging others, gossiping about other people to make you feel better about yourself, tearing them down, you know, slandering, binging, uh, watching, eating, drinking in abundance, all because woe, woe, woe is me. And so whether it's self-importance or self-pity, both will serve as a barrier to what God wants you to know about him, what God wants to do through you, and what God wants you to experience in life. And so what's the response? What's the solution? Well, if we finish out this conversation between God and Moses, God provides a different path, a different perspective. Moses says to God, uh, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, you know, hypothetically, let's say I do what you're asking me to do. Okay, okay, Moses, go ahead. I'll play your game. The God of your forefathers, your forefathers or fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what, sh what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, you tell them, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This statement is the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, and constant presence. God's greatness is not contingent upon anyone else or any one thing. His plans are not contingent upon any circumstances. He is eternally constant. God is unchangeable. And he's completely sufficient in himself to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. The truth is he doesn't need me or he doesn't need you, but he chooses to use us despite our brokenness. And so he says, you tell them this statement, I am. And so the messaging here and the thing for us to, to walk away with today is this, that Moses made the mistake of focusing inwardly to only focusing on who he is. Who am I? Instead of focusing on who God is. Isn't it true that we often spend so much time and energy thinking about who we are not? God, who, who am I? Instead of focusing on who God is. Or we spend too much time and energy focusing on our own greatness instead of God's greatness. And we forget to think about, well, yeah, I've done some stuff, but think about who God is. I mean, when's the last time you created the heavens and the universe? Exactly. And so take a look at the shift here. If we find ourselves in a season of self-pity and we're fo focusing on who I am not, the solution is focus on who God is. He is the great I am. The great things he wants to do in you and through you does not depend on your ability to be great. It's about the fact that he is great and he is infinitely great. If you find yourself in a season of focusing on self-importance, then you're focusing on who I am and my greatness and my significance. The solution is the same, to focus on who God 
is. You know, social media is the best social experiment for this, this, this gravitational pull to experience these two familiar paths. You know, there are some on social media, self-pity. Oh, man, this is all, all the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Man, look at their life. They're living their best life. Oh, I wish, I wish I was as good as them, you know. And then there are those that uh, experience self-importance, and they present the best version of themselves. I'm amazing. Look at good, you know, the best version of myself. Yeah, I got junk in my life, but I don't want you to see about that. And so you have two people experiencing social media in a different way. In one form, self-pity. Another one, self-importance. And so here's a practical way for you to take a next step. What I want to do is I'm going to illustrate it through the baggage. If I've got self-pity in my life, (laughs) I want to offboard this baggage. I want, to, I want to leave this behind because if I bring this with me to where God wants to take me, it's going to serve as a barrier. If I'm constantly, you know, woe is me and constantly focusing on all the failures, all the things I've done, I'm never going to take a step and focus on who God is. My past is not my future as, as the gospel says. I've been redeemed. Christ died on the cross for my sins. I'm a new, a new creation. But if I'm only focusing on my failures, my hurts, my habits, my hangups, it's going to be a barrier. So I want to leave this behind. And this is what I want to do. I want to pick something else up. I want to pick up the truth of the gospel and who I am in Christ. And I want to humble myself. I want to choose humility and I want to choose honor. I want to humble myself and think about, okay, this is who I am. And despite my rebellion, God still loves me. I'm known, I'm accepted. You know what? I'm going to honor him with my life. Humility and honor. That's what I'm going to pack. That's what I'm going to bring with me because that'll be a bridge to where God wants to take me. And so if I'm the type of person that's constantly struggling with self-importance, and I'm thinking about, hey, look what I've done. I got this promotion. I've got this career. My kids got it all figured out. And I think about all of you. Look, look at my ability. I did this. I've made these accomplishments. If that's your familiar path, then what you need to do is you need to put that in your past. Because it will serve as a barrier. You will constantly forget the one who was great, and you will miss out on meaningful worship, meaningful experiences, meaningful knowledge of the one who knows you better and wants you to know the depth of his love. You're going to miss it because you're going to be blinded by your pride. And so let's offboard that baggage of self-importance. And we want to onboard, again, I want to make sure that I've got all the humility I need and all the honor I need because it's going to take lowering myself and honoring God and say, you know what, from this point forward, I want to be the type of person that's known for making God great. Not my own accomplishments, but honoring him and pointing to him. That's what I want to bring with me where I go. So this will be the bridge to where God wants to take me and the great accomplishments he wants to do in me and through me me. And so today I want to give you a chance of reflection and to think about this and say, if you're resonating with Moses and you can identify with this battle of self-importance and self-pity, I want you to know that there's good news because Jesus was the better Moses. And because Jesus chose humility and honor, so can we. Here, here's, here's what's true of Jesus. This is found in, in John's gospel. Don't miss this. Uh, it's gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 38. You know, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who has sent me. Humility 
and honor. Next chapter, verse 16. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Humility and honor. Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Humility and honor. One of the things that we read about in the New Testament is the, re- the response of communion, and we're going to do that today. And when Paul gave instructions for taking communion, he said to do that contemplating and considering who God is and who we are. And to, to not take it without this proper consideration. And that when we take it, that there is a symbolic act that is taking place. And that we're remembering Jesus' body, which was crushed on the cross for us. His body was broken to set us free from self-importance and self-pity. And, and you have a bread or, or wafer or cracker, that'll work, whatever it is. And so what we want to do now is we want to remember that because he was broken, we're set free. So let's take this, this bread, this wafer together. And we also want to remember Jesus' blood, which was shed on the cross. And, and, and the fancy word is atonement. It means to cover up all of our sin. We want to remember that Jesus has set us free from self-importance and self-pity. So let's take this juice or water or wine whatever you have together. And as we remember this, we want to remember that communion helps us remember that it takes great sacrifice for great purposes. God sacrificed his own son for the greater purpose of humanity being reconciled with their creator. Would you pray? Father, as we respond now, Help us to identify the self-importance in our heart and the self-pity within us that is serving as a barrier. Help us find and search and see how we can learn from the past so that it is a bridge to what you want to do in us and through us. Help us to offload some baggage and to bring some baggage with us that will help us grow experience more of you. Holy Spirit, would you make it clear to us this week what that looks like? As we open up your word and truth, would you gear, steer us, guide us, and direct us so that we can know more and more of Christ? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You see, for those of us that are caught in guilt and shame, Jesus has set you free. Your self-importance or self-pity can be a bid, binge a bridge or a barrier. I want to invite you to embrace humility. I want to invite you to choose honor. Because for the Israelites, God was taking them somewhere, but he wanted to do so much more. It wasn't just about the destination. It's about discovering who God is and his greatness and his accomplishment and his purposes. So over the next few weeks, I hope that you're humble enough to consider honoring God and what he wants to do through you and to see how your baggage can serve as a bridge or a barrier. That's my hope for us over the next few weeks. I want to invite you to sing one more song with us today as we close out today. Thanks for being with me. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If so, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast 
For more information about Eastern Hills, please check out easternhills.org. We would love to pray for you. Email your request to office at easternhills.org. If you would like to donate to the ministry of Eastern Hills, click the donate button in the upper right-hand corner of our website. We look forward to connecting with you again next week. Take care. God bless.